Volume 1, Chapter 5 of the Heidenmauer, or the Benedictines, a legend of the Rhine, by James Fedimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Joel Kendrick. The Heidenmauer, by James Fedimore Cooper, Volume 1, Chapter 5. What news? None, my lord, but that the world is grown honest. Then is doomsday near. Hamlet. Within the whole of these widely extended states, there is scarcely a single vestige of the manner of life led by those who first settled in the wilderness. Little else is found to arrest the eye of the antiquary in the shape of a ruin except the walls of some fortress or the mounds of an entrenchment of the War of Independence. We have it, it is true, some faint remains of times still more remote and there are even a few circumvallations or other inventions of defense that are believed to have once been occupied by the red man. But in no part of the country did there ever exist an edifice of either a public or a private nature that bore any material resemblance to a feudal castle. In order, therefore, that the reader shall have as clear a picture as our feeble powers can draw of the hold occupied by the sturdy baron who is destined to act a conspicuous part in the remainder of this legend, it has become necessary to enter at some length into a description of the surrounding localities and of the building itself. We say of the reader, for we profess to write only for the amusement, fortunate shall we be if instruction may be added, of our own countrymen. Should others be pleased to read these crude pages, we shall be flattered and, of course, grateful. But with this distinct avowal of our object in holding the pen, we trust they will read with the necessary amount of indulgence. And here we shall take occasion to hold one moment's communion with that portion of the reading public of all nations, that, as respects a writer, composes what is termed the world. Let it not be said of us, because we make frequent reference to opinions and circumstances as they exist in our native land, that we are profoundly ignorant of the existence of all others. We make these references, crime though it be in hostile eyes, because they best answer our end in writing at all because they allude to a state of society most familiar to our own minds, and because we believe that great use has hitherto been made of the same things to foster ignorance and prejudice. Should we unheedingly betray the foible of national vanity, that foul and peculiar blot of American character, we solicit forgiveness, urging in our own justification the aptitude of a young country for falling insensibly into the vein of imitation and praying the critical observer to overlook any blunders in this way, if perchance we should not manifest that felicity of execution which is the fruit only of great practice. Hitherto we believe that our modesty cannot justly be impeached, as yet we have left the cardinal virtues to mankind in the gross never to our knowledge having written of American courage, or American honesty, nor yet of American beauty, nor happily of American manliness, nor even of American strength of arm, as qualities abstracted and not common to our fellow creatures, but have been content to the unsophisticated language of this western clime, to call virtue, virtue, and vice, vice. In this we well know how much we have fallen short of numberless, but nameless classical writers of our own time. Though we do not think we are great losers by the forbearance, because we have sufficient proof that when we wish to make our pages unpleasant to the foreigner, we can affect that object by much less imposing allusions to national merits. 
since we have good reason to believe there exists a certain querulous class of readers who consider even the most delicate and reserved commendations of this Western world as so much praise unreasonably and dishonestly abstracted from themselves. As for that not in our own fair country who aim at success by flattering the stranger and who hope to shine in their own little orbits by means of borrowed light, we commit to them the correction of a reproof which is certain to come, and, in their cases, to come embittered by the consciousness of its being merited by a servility as degrading as it is unnatural. As they dive deeper into the secrets of the human heart, they will learn there is a healthful feeling that cannot be repulsed with impunity, and that as none are so respected as they who fearlessly and frankly maintain their rights, so none are so contemned as those who ignobly desert them. During the time that Burkhold was holding converse with Meta on the mountain of the Heidenmauer, Emmick of Leinigen was at rest in his castle of Hartenburg. It has already been said that the hold was of massive masonry, the principal material being the reddish sandstone that is so abundantly found in nearly the whole region of the ancient Palatinate. The building had grown with time, and that which had originally been a tower had swelled into a formidable and extensive fortress. In the ages which succeeded the empire of Charlemagne, he who could rear one of these strong places and maintain it in opposition to his neighbors became noble and in some measure a sovereign. He established his will as law for the contiguous territory, and they who could not enjoy their own lands without submitting to his pleasure were content to purchase protection by admitting their vassalage. No sooner was one of these local lords firmly established in his hold by receiving service and homage from their husbandmen than he began to quarrel with his nearest neighbor of his own condition. The victor necessarily grew more powerful by his conquests until from being the master of one castle and one village, he became in process of time the master of many. In this manner did minor barons swell into power and sovereignty, even mighty potentates tracing their genealogical and political trees into roots of this wild growth. There still stands on an abrupt and narrow ledge of land, in the Confederation of Switzerland, and in the canton of Argovie, a tottering ruin that in past ages was occupied by a knight, who, from his airy, overlooked the adjoining village, and commanded the services of its handful of boars. This ruined castle was called Habsburg, and is celebrated as the cradle of that powerful family which has long sat upon the throne of the Caesars, and which now rules so much of Germany and Upper Italy. The king of Prussia traces his line to the house of Hohenzollern, the offspring of another castle, and numberless are the instances in which he who first laid the cornerstone of a strong place in ages when security was only to be had by good walls also laid the foundation of a long line of prosperous and puissant princes. Neither the position of the castle of Hartenburg, however, nor the period in which it was founded was likely to lead to results as great as these just named. As has been said, it commanded a pass important for local purposes, but not so much moment as to give him who held the hold any material rights beyond its immediate influence. Still, as the family of Leinigen was numerous and had other branches and other possessions in more favored portions of Germany, Count Emich was far from being a mere mountain chief. The feudal system had become methodized long before his birth, and the laws of the empire secured to him many villages and towns on the plain as the successor of those who had obtained them in more remote ages. He had recently claimed even a higher dignity and wider territories as heir of the deceased kinsman. But in this attempt to increase his power and to elevate his rank, he had been thwarted by a decision of his peers. 
It was to this abortive assumption of dignity that he owed the sobriquet of the summer landgrave, for such was the rank he had claimed and the period for which he had been permitted to bear it. With this knowledge of the power of their family, the reader will not be surprised to hear that the castle of the Counts of Hartenburg, or, to be more accurate, of the Counts of hartenburg Leinigen, was on a commensurate scale. Perched on the advanced spur of the mountain, just where the valley was most confined, and at a point where a little river made a short bend, the path beneath lay quite at the mercy of the archer on its battlements. In the foreground, all that part of the edifice which came into the view was military, and in some slight degree fitted to the imperfect use that was then made of artillery. While in the rear rose that maze of courts, chapels, towers, gates, portcullises, staterooms, offices, and family apartments that marked the usages and tastes of the day. The hamlet which lay in the dell immediately beneath the walls of the salient towers or bastions, for they partook of both characters, was insignificant and of little account in estimating the wealth and resources of the feudal lord. These came principally from Durkheim, and the fertile plains beyond, though the forest was not without its value in a country in which the axe had so long been used. We have said that Emich of Leinigen was taking his rest in the hold of Hartenburg. Let the reader imagine a massive building in the center of the confused pile we have mentioned, rudely fashioned to meet the wants of the domestic economy of that age, and he will get a nearer view of the interior. The walls were wainscoted and had much uncouth and massive carving. The halls were large and gloomy, loaded with armor, and at this moment pregnant with armed men. The saloons of the medium size, which suited a baronial state, and all the appliances of that mingled taste in which comfort and luxury, as now understood, were unknown, but which was not without a portion of the effect that is produced by an exhibition of heavy magnificence. With but few signal exceptions, Germany, even at this hour, is not a country remarkable for the elegancies of domestic life. Its very palaces are of simple decoration, its luxuries of a home-bred and inartificial kind, and its taste is rarely superior, and indeed not always equal to our own. There is still a shade of the Gothic in the habits and opinions of this constant people, who seem to cultivate the subtle refinements of the mind, in preference to the more obvious and material enjoyments which address themselves to the senses. Quaint and complicated ornaments wrought by the patient industry of a race proverbial for this description of ingenuity. Swords, daggers, morions, cuirasses, and all sorts of defensive armor then in use. Such needlework as it befitted a noble dame to produce. Pictures that possessed most of the faults and few of the beauties of the Flemish school. Furniture that bore some relation to the garniture of the palaces of electors and kings as the decorations of a village drawing room in our own time bear to those of the large towns. A profuse display of plate on which the arms of Leinigen were embossed and engraven in every variety of style, with genealogical trees and heraldic blazonry and colors were the principal features. Throughout the whole pile, there was little appearance, however, of the presence of females, or even of the means of their accommodation. Few of that sex were seen in the corridors or offices or courts, though men crowded the place in unusual numbers. The latter were chiefly grim and whiskered warriors who loitered in the halls or in the more public parts of the castle, like idlers waiting for the expected movement of exertion. None among them were armed at all points, though this carelessly wore his morion that had buckled on a breastplate, and another leaned listlessly on his arquebus or handled his pike. Here a group exercised in levity with their several weapons of offense. There a jester amused a crowd of sluggish listeners with his ribaldry and humor, 
and numberless were those who quaffed at the Rhenish of their lord. Although this continent had then been discovered, the goodly portion which has since fallen to our heritage was still in the hands of its native proprietors, and the plant, so long known as the weed of Virginia, but which has since become a staple of so many other countries in this hemisphere, was not in its present general use amongst the Germans. Else would it have been our duty to finish this hasty sketch by enveloping it all in mist. Notwithstanding the general air of indifference and negligence which reigned within the walls of Hartenburg, without the gates, in the turrets, and on the advanced towers, there was the appearance of more than the customary watchfulness. Had one been there to note the circumstance, he would have seen, in addition to the sentries who always guarded the approaches of the castle, several swift-footed spies on the lookout, in the hamlet, on the rocks of the mountainside, and along the winding paths. And as all eyes were turned towards the valley in the direction of Limburg, it was evident that the event they awaited was expected to arrive from that quarter. While such was the condition of his hold, and of so strong a body of his vassals, Count Emic himself had retired from observation to one of the quaint, half-rude, half-magnificent saloons of the place. The room was lighted by twenty tapers, and other well-known signs indicated the near approach of guests. He paced the large apartment with a heavy and armed heel, while care, or at least severe thought, contracted the muscles around a hard and iron brow which bore evident marks of familiar acquaintance with the cask. Perhaps this is the only country of Christendom, even now in which the profession of the law is a pursuit still more honorable and esteemed than that of arms, the best proof of a high and enviable civilization. But at the age of our narrative, the gentleman that was not of the church, the calling which nearly monopolized all the learning of the times, was of necessity a soldier." Emic of Leinigen carried arms, therefore as much in course as the educated man of this century reads his Horace or Virgil, and as nature had given him a vigorous frame, a hardy constitution, and a mind whose indifference to personal suffering amounted at times to ruthlessness, he was more successful in his trade of violence than many a pale and zealous student proves in the cultivation of letters. The musing count scarce raised his looks from the oaken floor he trod, as menial after menial appeared, moving with light step in the presence of one so dreaded and yet so singularly loved, at length a female, busy in some of the little offices of her sex, glided before his half-unconscious sight. The youth, the bloom, the playful air, the neat coif, the tight bodice, and the ample folds of the falling garments at length seemed to fill his eye with the form of his companion. Is it thou, Gisela? he said, speaking mildly as one addressed a favored dependent. How fareth it with honest Carl? I thank my lord the count. His aged and wounded servant hath less of pain than is commonly his lot. The limb he has lost in the service of the house of Linogen? No matter for the leg, girl. Thou art too apt to dwell upon that mischance of thy parent. Were my lord the count to leave a limb on the field, it might be missed when he was hurried." Thinkest thou, child, that my tongue would never address the emperor without naming the defect? Go to, Gisela. Thou art a calculating hussy, and rarely permittest occasion to pass without allusion to this growing treasure of thy family. Are my people actively on the watch, with or without their limbs? They are as their natures and humors tend. Blessed St. Ursula knows where the officers of the country have picked up so ungainly a band, as these that now inhabit Hartenburg. One drinketh from the time his eyes open in the morn until they shut it even. Another sweareth worse than the northern warriors that do these ravages in the Palatinate. 
this a foul dealer in the ribaldry, that a glutton who never moveth lip but to swallow, and none, nay, not a swaggerer of them all, hath civil word for a maiden, though she be known as one esteemed in their master's household. They are my vassals, girl, and stouter men at need are not mustered in Germany. Stout in speech, and insolent of look, my lord count, but most odious company to all of most demeanor and of good intentions in the hold. Thou hast been humored by thy mistress, girl, until thou sometimes forgettest discretion. Go and look, my guests are informed that the hour of the banquet is at hand. I await the pleasure of their presence. Gisela, whose natural pertness had been somewhat heightened by an indulgent mistress, and in whom consciousness of more beauty than ordinarily falls to the share of females of her condition, had produced freedom of language that sometimes amounted to temerity, betrayed her discontent in a manner very common to her sex, when it is undisciplined or little restrained by a wholesome education. She pouted, taking care, however, that Emic's eye was again turned to the floor, tossed her head, and quitted the room. Left to himself, the Count relapsed into his reverie. In this manner did several minutes pass unheeded. "'Dreaming as usual, noble Emic, of escalades and excommunication?' cried a gay voice at his elbow, the speaker having entered the saloon unseen. "'Of revengeful priests of vassalage, of shaven abbots, the confessional and penance dire, thy rites redressed, the frowning conclave, the abbey cellar, thy morion, revenge, and, to sum up all, in a word that covers every deadly sin, that fallen angel, the devil.' Emic forced a grim smile at this unceremonious and comprehensive salutation, accepting the offered hand of him who uttered it, however, with the frank freedom of a boon companion.' "'Thou art welcome, Albrecht,' he replied, "'for the moment is near when my ghostly guests should arrive, "'and to deal fairly by thee, "'I never feel myself quite equal to a single combat of wits "'with the pious knaves. "'But thy support will be enough, "'though the whole abbey community were of the party. "'Aye, we are akin, we are sons of St. John, "'and these bastards of St. Benedict. "'Though more martial than your monks of the hill, "'we of the island are sworn to quite as many virtues.' Let me see, he added, counting on his fingers with an air of bold licentiousness. Firstly, are we vowed to celibacy? And your benedictine is no less so. Then, are we self-dedicated to chastity, as in your Limburg monk? Next, we respect our oaths, as does your father Bonifacius. Then both are servants of the Holy Cross. By a singular influence, the speaker and the count made the sacred symbol on their bosoms as the former uttered the word. And, doubt it not, I shall be the equal of the reverend brotherhood. They say sin can match sin, and saint should surely be saint's equal. But, Emic, thou art graver than becometh a hot carousal like this mediate, and thou gay as if about to gallant the dames of Rhodes to one of thy island festivals. The knight of St. John regarded his attire with complacency, strutting by the side of his host as the latter resumed his walk, with the air of a bird of admired plumage. Unlike the stern and masculine Emic who rarely divested himself of all his warlike gear, the sworn defender of the cross appeared entirely in a peaceful guise, if the long rapier that dangled at his side and which to a much later period formed an indispensable accompaniment of one of gentle condition could be expected from the implements of war. His doublet, fully decorated with embroidery, fringes, and loops, and dotted with buttons, was of a pale orange stuff that was puffed and distended about his person in the liberal amplitude of the prevailing fashion. 
The nether garment, which scarce appeared, however essential as it might be, was of the same material, and cut with a similar expenditure of cloth. The hose was pink, and rolling far above the knee gave the effect of a rich coloring to the whole picture. He wore shoes whose upper leather rose high against the small of the leg, buckles that covered the instep, and about the throat and wrist there was a lavish display of lace. The well-known Maltese cross dangled by a red ribbon at a buttonhole of the doublet, not above the heart, as is the custom at present among the chevaliers of the other hemisphere, but by a vagary of taste so low as to demonstrate, if indeed there is any illusion intended by the accidental position of these jewels, that the honorable badge was assumed in direct reference to that material portion of the human frame which is believed to be the repository of good cheer, an interpretation that, in the case of Albrecht of Weiderbach, the knight in question was perhaps much nearer to the truth than he would have been willing to own. After poising himself first on the point of one shoe, and then on the other, smoothing his ruffles, shoving the rapier more aside, and otherwise adjusting his attire to his mind, the professed soldier of St. John of Jerusalem pursued the discourse. I am a decent kinsman, he replied, fit to be a guest at thy hospitable board, if thou wilt in the absence of its fair mistress, but beyond that unworthy to be named. As for the dames of our unhappy and violated roads, dear cousin, thou knowest little of their humors. If thou fanciest that this rude guise would have any charm in their refined eyes. Our knights were used to bring into the island the taste and improvements of every distant land, and small though it be, there are few portions of the earth in which the human arts, for so I call the decoration of the human body, flourished more than in our circumscribed, valiant, and much-regretted roads. Thus it was, at least until the fell Ottoman triumphed. For God, I had thought thee sworn to all sorts of modesty and speech, life, and other abstinences. And art thou not sworn, most mutinous emic, to obey thy liege lords, the emperor and the elector, nay, for certain of thy lands and privileges? Art thou not bound to knight service and obedience to the holy abbot of Limburg? God's curse on him and all the others of that grasping brotherhood. Ay, that is but the natural consequence of thy oath, as this doublet is of mine. If the rigid performance of a vow is as agreeable to the body as we are taught, it may be healthful to the soul, Count Lenigen. Where would be the merit of observance? I never don these graceful garments, but a wholesome remembrance of watchful nights passed on the ramparts of painful sieges and watery trenches, or of sickly cruises against the Mussulmans do not present themselves in the shape of past penances. In this manner do we sweeten sin by our bodily pains and by the memory of hours of virtuous hardships? By the three sainted kings of Colne and the eleven thousand virgins of that honored city, Master Albrecht, but thou wert much favored in thy narrow island if it were permitted to thee to sin in this fashion with the certainty of tempering punishment with so light service. These griping monks of Limburg make much of their favors, and he who would go with a safe skin must needs look to an indulgence had and well paid for in advance. I know not the number of goodly casks of the purest Rhenish that little sallies of humor may have cost me first and last in this manner of princely expenditure. But certain am I that did occasion offer the united tributes would leave little empty space in Prince Friedrich's vaunted tun in his ample cellars of Heidelberg. 
I have often heard of that royal receptacle of generous liquor and have mediated a pilgrimage in honor of its capacity. Does the elector receive noble travelers with a hospitality suited to his rank and means? That doth he, and right willingly, though this war presses sorely, and giveth him other employment. Thy wayfaring will not be weary, for thou mayest see the towers of Heidelberg from off these hills, and a worthy steed might be pricked from this court of mine into that of Duke Friedrich in a couple of hours of hard riding. When the merits of thy cellar are exhausted, noble Emic, it will be in season to put the ton to the proof, replied the Knight of Rhodes. As our esteemed friend here, the Abbe, will maintain in the face of all the reformers with which Germany is infested. In introducing another character, we claim the reader's patience for a moment of digression. Whatever may be said of the merits and legality of the Reformation, affected chiefly by the courage of Luther, and we are neither sectarian nor unbeliever to deny the sacred origin of the church from which he dissented, it is very generally admitted that the long and undisputed sway of the prevailing authority of that age had led to abuses, which called loudly for some change in its administration. Thousands of those who had devoted their lives to the administrations of the altar were quite as worthy of the sacred office as it falls to man's lot to become. But thousands had assumed the tonsure, the cowl, or the other symbols of ecclesiastical duty merely to enjoy the immunities and facilities the character conferred. A long and nearly undisputed monopoly of letters, the influence obtained by the unnatural union between secular and religious power, and the dependent condition of the public mind, the legitimate consequence of both, induced all who aspire to moral preeminence to take this the most certain because the most beaten of the paths that led to this species of ascendancy. It is not alone to the religion of Christendom, as it existed in the time of Luther, that we are to look for an example of the baneful consequence of spiritual and temporal authority, as blended in human institutions. Christian or Mohammedan, Catholic or Protestant, the evil comes in every case from the besetting infirmity which tempts the strong to oppress the weak, and the powerful to abuse their trusts. Against this failing, there seems to be no security but an active and certain responsibility. So long as the severe morality required of its ministers by the Christian faith is uncorrupted by any gross admixture of worldly advantage, there is reason to believe that the altar at least will escape serious defilement. But no sooner are these fatal enemies admitted to the sanctuary than a thousand spirits prompted by cupidity rush rashly into the temple, willing to bear with the outward exactions of the faith in order to seek its present and visible rewards. However pure may be a social system or a religion, in the commencement of its power, the possession of an undisputed ascendancy lures all alike into excesses fatal to consistency, to justice, and to truth. This is a consequence of the independent exercise of human volition that seems nearly inseparable from human frailty. We gradually come to substitute inclination and interest for right until the moral foundations of the mind are sapped by indulgence, and what was once regarded with the aversion that wrong excites in the innocent gets to be not only familiar, but justifiable by expediency and use. 
There is no more certain symptom of the decay of the principles requisite to maintain even our imperfect standard of virtue than when the plea of necessity is urged in vindication of any departure from its mandate, since it is calling in the aid of ingenuity to assist the passions, a coalition that rarely fails to lay prostrate the feeble defenses of a tottering morality. It is no wonder, then, that the world, at a period when religious abuses drove even churchmen reluctantly to seek relief in insubordination, should exhibit bold instances of the flagrant excesses we have named. Military ambition, venality, love of ease, and even love of dissipation equally sought the mantle of religion as cloaks to their several objects. And if the reckless cavalier was willing to flesh his sword on the body of the infidel in order that he might live in men's estimation as a hero of the cross, so did the trifler, the debauchee, and even the wit of capital consent to obtain circulation by receiving an impression which gave currency to all coin, whether of purer or of baser metal, since it bore the outward stamp of the Church of God. Reformers, or rather revilers, for that is the term they most merit, returned the abbe, alluded to in the last speech of Albrecht of Weiderbach, I consign without remorse to the devil. As for this pledge of our brave knight of St. John, noble Count Emic, so far as I am concerned, it shall be redeemed. For I am certain the sellers of Heidelberg can resist a heavier inroad than any that is likely to invade them by such means. But I am late for my chamber, and I had hoped, ere this, to have seen our brethren of Limburg. I hope no unnecessary misunderstanding is likely to deprive us of the satisfaction of their presence, Lord Count. Little fear of that, so far as it may depend on any disappointment in a feast. If ever the devil tempted these monks of the hill, it has been in the shape of gluttony. Were I to judge by experiences of forty years past in their neighborhood, I should think they deem abstinence as an eighth deadly sin. Your Benedictine is privileged to consider hospitality a virtue, and the abbot has fair license for the indulgence of some little cheer. We will not judge them harshly, therefore, but form our opinions of their merits by their deeds. Thou hast many servitors without to do them honor tonight, Lord Emic. The Count of Leinigen frowned, and ere he answered his eye exchanged a glance with that of his kinsman, which the abbe might have interpreted into a hidden meaning had it attracted his observation. My people gather loyally about their lord, for they have heard of this succor sent by the elector to uphold the lazy Benedictines, was the reply. Four hundred mercenaries lie within the abbey walls this night, Master Latouche, and it should not cause surprise that the vassals of Emic of Hartenburg are ready with hand and sword to do service in his defense. God's mercy! The cunning priest may pretend alarm, but if any here hath cause to be afraid, truly it is the rightful and wronged lord of the Jägerthal. Thy situation, cousin of Hartenburg, observed the wearer of the cross of St. John, is in sooth one of masterly diplomacy. Here dost thou stand at sword's point with the abbot of Limburg, ready at need to exchange deadly thrusts, and to put his long-disputed supremacy on the issue of battle while thou callest on the keeper of thy cellar to bring forth the choicest of its contents, in order to do hospitality and honor to thy mortal foe. This beateth in all niceties, Monsieur Latouche, the situation of an abbé of thy quality who is scarce churchman enough to merit salvation, nor yet deep enough in sin to be incontinently damned in the general mass of evildoers. It is to be hoped that we shall share the common lot of mortals, which is to receive more grace than thy merit. 
returned the abbe, a title that in fact scarce denoted one seriously devoted to the church. But I trust this present meeting between the hostile powers may prove amicable. For, not to conceal the truth, unlike our friend the knight here, I am none of the belligerent orders. Hark! exclaimed the host, lifting a finger to command attention. Heard ye aught? There is much of the music of thy growlers and the court's cousin, and some oaths in a German that needs to be translated to be understood. But that blessed signal, the supper bell, is still mute. Go to! Tis the abbot of Limburg and his brethren, Father Siegfried and Kuno, led us to the portal to do them usual honor. As this was welcome news to both the knight and the abbe, they manifested a suitable desire to be foremost in paying the required attention to a personage as important in that region as the rich and powerful chief of the neighboring religious establishment. End of Volume 1, Chapter 5 Read by Joel Kendrick